If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 8. And I want to give a disclaimer. Uh, well, first of all, in your bulletin, there's a little handout. It'll help you follow along. You can take some notes. This is the sermon that I have I wrote weeks ago and got sick and couldn't preach it. And then the week after that, God totally messed me up and slapped me around and rebuked me. And so the sermon got pushed back a little bit farther because I felt like I needed to share with you what the Lord had been doing and speaking to me. And then last week, again, I just felt like the Lord said it's not the right time. Um, and so we, I shared the message last week. Um, and then finally, I felt like the Lord say, now, now's the time. So I'm really glad because I've been waiting to preach this sermon for a month and we finally get to it. <clears throat> so, uh, the, uh, just to give you some background, maybe if you're a little bit new to Friendship Church, we've been going through the life of Christ chronologically. And what that's done is it's helped us see Jesus through all of these different moments in chronological order so that you get the context, so that you understand what's going on, where he is, where he's going, who he's with, and things of that nature. So it helps you understand the stories in the Gospels a little bit better. Um, We also give you the opportunity during the service, you can text questions. So in a minute, uh, some of the slides will appear at the bottom will be a phone number, and you can text a question if you have it during the service. Uh, at the bottom of your uh, little handout is also the phone number that you can text the questions. They'll go to one of my staff members, and if the question is relevant to uh, the sermon that I'm preaching about today, um, and if, if we've got the time, we'll, we will definitely try to answer them just to make sure that we have an opportunity to have a bit of a dialogue so that you can feel like, oh, okay, you know, so I, I'm curious about this. You mentioned this, but could you expand on it or expound on it a little bit? So uh, we give you that opportunity to have a bit of a discussion towards the end, but without passing a microphone, that would be awkward uh, for, for, for some folks. So you can text it anonymously and not have to worry about it. Um, but we are in John chapter 8, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you use the Bible app, you can use that. Um, today is... Part 9, Caught in the Act. So most of you have in your Bibles a pa- this passage of Scripture, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And when you first see this passage of Scripture, you'll see it's in brackets. The whole passage is in brackets. And what that means is that there are, there are notes that this story did not appear in the oldest Bible manuscripts that we have. That means that someone at, at a later date uh, is, is believed to have added this story in the Bible. And so we have to ask ourselves some questions. Anytime something gets added to the Bible, we, we, there are some questions we need to ask. First of all, um, does that make this story unbiblical? Okay, well... In order to answer that, we have to look at the story in and of itself and basically answer three questions. Does it give us a new revelation of Jesus? Does it promote any new theology? Does it contain anything that is contrary to any other scripture? And I believe the answer to all of those questions is no. And so we take this passage at face value and we accept it as a biblical story that actually took place where many church fathers accepted it as scriptural as well. So we're actually going to begin in verse 2 of John chapter 8. 
It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So the, right off the bat, we see a revelation of this first point, the person of Christ. The person of Christ. So again, if you have your bulletin insert, you can write that. That's the first blank. Number one, you see the person of Christ. The main character in this story is not the religious leaders. The main character of this story is not the woman that is about to be introduced to Jesus. The main character of this story is Jesus himself. And what you need to understand is from cover to cover, this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. From the very first encounter anyone has with Jesus, where you've got Adam and Eve in the garden, walking in the cool of the day, in the presence of the Lord. In God, they're walking with God in a body. They're walking with God in his embodiment, his flesh. And so we believe that's called a Christophany an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament because it says that God walked with them. And the Father, God the Father is spirit, and he, is, he made this universe, therefore he's larger than the universe. But when it talks about God in a body, it's always referring to Jesus. So we believe that at the very beginning of Scripture, in the book of Genesis, God is revealing himself. Jesus is being revealed from the very beginning. And then uh, he is uh, from walking with Moses on Mount Sinai. He's revealing himself to Moses face to face. He's walking with his disciples all over Israel, and he's encountering people. And then he's walking with John on the island of Patmos as John is recounting the information that will become the book of the Revelation, revealing himself as the great I am, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So Jesus is revealing himself, and he reveals himself as he walks with people. And that is why we do what we do with this passage of Scripture, with this, with this sermon series. We take these passages and we slow down, and we're walking with Christ. We're walking in his steps. So what is Jesus doing in this passage? He is teaching the people, and he did that all the time. He doesn't want them to be ignorant of what God is doing. As we talked about last week, there was a whole lot of hypocrisy from the religious leaders. They would require people to have heavy burdens, and they would take God's word, and they would make their own traditions, and they would make them above the word of God. And and Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He said, you invalidate God's word for the sake of your own traditions. And so he said, you're, you're burdening these people with all these rules and regulations, but you're figuring out ways to not have to adhere to them yourselves. So Jesus is trying to teach the people how to live according to God's standard. So he's teaching them. Well, what was he teaching? Probably one of the many things he taught on a regular basis. The first thing he taught was about salvation. In John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, a man who was, uh, he, he wasn't an outsider, he was an insider. He was part of the Jewish religious system. And Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. And so there's this conversation that takes place in John chapter 3, where Jesus is trying to explain to him, no longer are you going to be saved by family relation. No longer are you going to be saved because you were born into the church. It is your personal responsibility to accept Jesus Christ. 
My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was an evangelist. I'm the 13th minister on my dad's side of the family. And as, as, as great of a heritage as that may be, it doesn't matter when it comes to issues of salvation because I cannot be saved based on my father's relationship with the Lord, based on my grandfather's relationship with the Lord. Salvation is a personal decision, and I had to make that, and every one of you have to make that as well. So Jesus taught about salvation. He also taught about separation from the world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, he said in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If there's one thing this world can do, it is pollute you. It is take the things of the world and somehow make them look good enough that you don't recognize how it pollutes you spiritually. You have to be on your guard all the time. There are things that we don't watch because they're just pollute. Uh, they're polluted. Uh, personally, for me, I don't like watching award shows. I know there are people that, that watch award shows and the Oscars and the Grammys and the, the Golden Globes and all that stuff, and, and they want to see how people are dressed, and they want to see who wins this stuff. I cannot stand it because it is three hours of the most arrogant people on the planet feeling like that they should have won that award. I don't know if you remember this, but it wasn't too long ago before Kanye accepted Christ that Kanye was acting a fool because Kanye thought that somebody else should have won this award that another uh, artist won. And he got up on stage when the artist who won was giving her speech and thanking thank you to my producer and thank you to this. And, you know, Kanye got up and said, I'm going to let you finish, but this other person should have won. I'm like, how awkward did you just make it? And so it's three hours of people who, who are trying to dress to impress and trying to fill their, the space with their arrogance and their pride. I can't stand it. Now, there may be things I watch that you may say, I can't stand it. You know, three hours of soccer, three hours of hockey. I, I'm okay with that. You may not be okay with that. That's okay. I'm not judging you. Don't judge me. <clears throat> but we should understand how to be separate from the world that we are called to be. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. Our allegiance is to a higher authority. It is to a kingdom not to rulers and not to political parties and not to, not to anyone else or anything else. That is not where our allegiance lies. And you need to make sure that you have that dialed, down, dialed in and you understand that because your allegiance lies to the king of kings. I know it's an election year. We'll move on. One of the other things that Jesus talked a lot about was steadfastness. In Matthew chapter 7, he talked about how you've got to build your house on the rock and not on the sand. It's so easy for us to build our lives on things that are shifting sand. We build our lives a lot of times on ourselves. We build our lives on our own accomplishments, on our own strengths. We build our lives on all the things we know we can do. And it's so easy for us to depend on ourselves. I mean, why would I delegate it to you when you're just going to mess it up? I'll just do it myself. Just give me the broom. Give me this. Give me that. Give me that spreadsheet. Give me this. Just let me do it myself. 
because we know our own strengths and we know that we can do it. And when we do it, it'll be done exactly the way we want it done. And so we build our house on ourselves. We, we declare ourselves our own foundation. And what does Jesus say? That's shifting sand. But when you build your house, when you establish your life on the rock, you don't have to worry about the storms when they come. Because he is faithful. Another thing that Jesus talked a lot about was surrender. He taught a lot about surrender. <clears throat> when, when Jairus, uh, which we covered weeks ago, months ago, Jairus, this, uh, he was a Jewish religious leader. He came to Jesus, and he had a sick daughter, and word came to him that she was already dead. Now, in the Jewish mindset, death is the end. Death is the final thing, and nobody can stop death. No one can bring anyone back from the dead except God alone. And so Jairus had come to Jesus. He's heard about Jesus, and he says, um, can you come heal my daughter? And Jesus says, I'll come. Well, then Jairus, on the way to Jairus' house, Jesus gets interrupted with the woman who had the issue of blood. She grabs onto the, the tassels of Jesus' prayer shawl, and Jesus is dragging her, and he's like, what is your deal? Not in those words. He was a lot more gentle than that. But she was healed immediately. And we went through all of that. You should go back and listen to that sermon. It was really good. Um, it's got some really good spiritual insights for you. But um, Jesus is delayed. He's trying to get to Jairus' house, and he's being delayed. And so um, then word comes to Jairus, don't bother Jesus any longer. Your daughter's dead. Now, if you have children... Hearing that your child has died is the most devastating thing you could ever hear. You're prepared somewhat for your parent to pass away. But when you hear your child has died, it's devastating. And they tell him, don't bother the master any longer. Your daughter's dead. And in that moment, Jesus catches the eyes of Jairus. And he tells him, have faith. Just believe. You came to me because you believed I could heal your daughter. You came to me because you believe I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. If I am the Messiah, don't be afraid. Just believe. He is encouraging Jairus to surrender his fear. Surrender his fear of what has just happened and what will come. Surrender his fear and give way to faith. Don't let fear squash your faith. And so, we under, if you read the rest of the story, you know Jesus came in to the place where the daughter was laid, spoke the word, and she was healed instantly, raised from the dead. And nobody can bring somebody back from the dead except God, thereby demonstrating Jesus Christ was God. And so he taught his disciples and people, he taught them about total surrender. John 8, let's keep going, verse 3 through 5. It says, The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? So first we see the person of Christ. Number two, we see the problem of this woman. 
the problem of this woman. A woman who was guilty of adultery was brought into the center of the courtyard at the temple. That's like being dragged into the foyer of the church with everybody watching. So to say that it would be an embarrassing moment is quite an understatement. It's, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's a terrible way to meet the Messiah being dragged out in your sin. If she was caught in the act, why didn't they bring the man also? Some of our ladies appreciate that. You can't commit adultery by yourself. So if she was caught in the act of adultery, why didn't they bring the man as well? We'll get to that in a moment. But obviously the man was just as guilty as the woman. And here they reveal their true motives. They are not out for justice. They are doing this simply to trap Jesus. Now, according to the Old Testament law, this woman and her accomplice were to be stoned to death. What would Jesus do? Would he reinforce the law that Moses wrote, or would he reject it? Let's look at that. If Jesus reinforced the Mosaic law requiring her to be stoned to death, then Jesus was not the compassionate man that everyone made him out to be. He was well known for his compassion, healing lepers, raising the dead, and going beyond the borders of Israel to neighboring countries and ministering to people there. If he reinforced the law to stone her, the leaders could demonstrate that Jesus was not the man of the people that the crowds treated him like. But if he rejected the Mosaic law, then he was breaking the law and therefore could not be the Messiah that some made him out to be. Jesus said of himself, he said himself that scripture, the word of God cannot be broken. How in the world can Jesus respond to the situation? He can't reinforce it and be the compassionate Messiah, and he can't reject it without breaking Scripture and being proved a liar. So these religious leaders were also essentially saying, Jesus, since your name means Savior, how can you save this woman from the law's requirements? Can you save her from what Moses' law demands? Verses 6 through 7 says, They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So number three, we see the patience of Christ. The patience of Christ. Jesus almost seemed to react with indifference to their question. He didn't address their question right away. He didn't answer them. He knelt down and he began to write with his finger in the dirt. Now, the age-old question is, what did he write? Because, again, we, we typically know the rest of the story. What did he write? Well, the Scripture never tells us. There is no point from here forward in the New Testament, no biblical writer ever gives us any indication as to what Jesus wrote. Some people have have, uh, presumed, they've they've made some assumptions and presumptions and said, well, maybe he wrote the Ten Commandments. 
you know, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, and thou shalt not have no, thou shalt not have any graven images, and don't take the Lord's name in vain, and don't uh, uh, lie, don't covet, don't steal, don't take anything that belongs to your neighbor, don't commit adultery, don't murder, honor your parents, etc. Maybe he's writing those out. Maybe he was writing out what Paul would later write are the works of the flesh. Maybe he was writing just a list of sins, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, etc. Maybe he's writing that out. Another commentator suggested this, which I thought was interesting. Maybe Jesus wrote the scripture, it's Exodus 23, 1, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. So when Jesus bent down and wrote a second time, this commentator said that he might have written the verse from Deuteronomy that the witnesses of a crime must be the first to throw stones. And a a crime required two to three witnesses at a minimum for a capital punishment, for any punishment, but especially a capital punishment to be carried out. How would they have known she was committing adultery unless they were complicit in the sin. So Jesus then gives them permission to stone the woman, which probably really made the woman nervous, especially if Jesus kind of gave a dramatic pause somewhere in there. He gave them permission to stone the woman, but only if they were without sin. And the implication there is that they were sinful of the very thing that they sought to convict her of. Capital punishment was lawful in Scripture, but Jesus warned against those who executed as being just as guilty as the condemned person. We see that in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus says, and and man, don't we love to quote this first part, judge not lest you be judged yourselves. Because when somebody starts judging us for the way we live our lives, the, the fact that we watch the Oscars and we want to see the red carpet and some pastor decides he's going to judge us and say, mm, you're letting impurity in. We're like, mm, pastor, judge not, lest you be judged yourself. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see that speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Our society is rampant with people quick to judge one another. And Facebook hasn't done us any favors. We see a video And we make an assumption about the validity of it. Oftentimes, it only captures one side of the story, one vantage point. We must discipline ourselves to be much slower to pass judgment when people are involved, especially because we may be guilty of the very things that we're judging them on. Verses 8 through 9 in Uh, John's gospel, it says, and once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. This is an amazing moment. First, 
this woman is engaging in sexual sin with somebody. Then she was forcefully and shamefully dragged out of that forbidden but private moment, probably half naked, completely naked, we don't know, and she's dragged all the way to the temple court. She's thrown in the middle of the courtyard at the feet of a man whom most likely she does not know, while the other men begin to pick up stones to kill her. And she must have known that this would be her last day on earth. What goes through a person's mind in that situation? I mean, you're about to die in your sins, and no one is going to save you. You chose to live to pursue your own selfish pleasures, and the God you fear so much will judge you and condemn you. I mean, she must have been sobbing uncontrollably. Hands shaking, eyes blurred with tears, expecting and hoping probably that the first stone that gets thrown knocks her out so she doesn't feel the rest of them. But that's not what happened. Not with Jesus in control of the situation. Whatever Jesus wrote in the sand that day caused each judgmental man to drop their stones and walk away. There would be no execution that day. Those who had brought charges against this woman realized the sin in their own life and that they were in no position to condemn her. Verses 10 through 11, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Her first words, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. But lastly, we see the pardon of Christ. The pardon of Christ. Between Jesus telling the men they could cast stones until the moment they dropped their stones was incredibly tense. We don't know how much time elapsed, but Jesus is riding in the sand And at some point, they're seeing something that makes them change their mind about what they're going to do. One person even said that Jesus might have been writing the names of their mistresses. You want to talk about tense? Miriam, Beth, Abigail. The guys are like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm, I'm, my bad, Jesus. In that moment with these men holding stones, I mean, they could have just flung one at Jesus. But Jesus is responding with compassion, and he's also responding in a way that where he understands what the law says, um, and he understands also the character of God because he is God. And so he doesn't stare them down. He didn't threaten the men. He didn't point fingers at them. He let the Holy Spirit convict them of their sins. Not one of these men could be critical of this woman and serve as her judge, jury, and executioner. Whatever Jesus wrote in the sand that day exposed the sin in their lives. If they had cast a stone, they would have done so as a hypocrite. And in verse 10, as I said, Jesus addressed the woman for the very first time. He didn't ask her if she was guilty. 
face to face with Jesus, she didn't offer any excuse. It's not even recorded that she offered a prayer of repentance. She never asked for forgiveness for what she did. She never justified her actions. She didn't plead ignorance. She knew that she stood accused and deserved whatever punishment was handed out. She felt the crushing weight that her sin deserved. She expected condemnation. She expected judgment. She expected death. And the one person in the entire universe that could condemn her for her behavior was Jesus, the sinless Son of God. He was the righteous judge. And when he gives a judgment, it is always right. He could have waited for all the hypocrites to leave and then said to her, they can't condemn you, but I can. But he didn't. He responded with mercy and compassion. And as God, he had the right to forgive her sins. So he pardoned her offense. His response to her sin and the punishment she had earned by her sins was grace. That same grace that God pours out to us when we sin, when we make a mistake. I'm so glad that when God got to me, I didn't exhaust his supply of grace. That there's enough for me, there's enough for you, there's enough for all of us. And with tenderness and compassion in his voice, Jesus says, you can go. Leave this life of sin behind you. In response to the grace you've received, let it change you. Came across a song. We want to show this video real quickly to you in just the next few moments as a way of helping maybe to illustrate uh, uh, this unique moment in time with, between Jesus and the woman caught in the act of adultery. So watch this video, and then we'll come up and finish in a moment. Nothing on the providence I know No longer bound to things of wood and stone When all I had to offer was my worst You saw my heavy heart and loved me first Your beauty staring down my broken Chose to throw your heart into the mess. Compassion crashing down upon my bed. You were there. Oh. Hallelujah. If ever now and no one 
our worship team to come on up. Uh, There were two questions that were, sorry, there's a third question that just came in. Uh, The first question was the scripture references regarding the witnesses. Let me go back for just a second. And let me find where that was in my notes. I believe the first one was in Exodus I'm regretting not putting that in your notes. I thought about putting it in your notes. Um, and Exodus 23, 1. Uh, Do not help a man, a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Exodus 23, 1. And then there are um, two passages in Scripture in Deuteronomy, uh, two times. Deuteronomy 17, 6. Never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. And then also in Deuteronomy, it's 19, 15. Uh, so Deuteronomy 17, 6 and Deuteronomy 19, 15. You must not convict anyone of a crime. Oh, goodness, I just lost it. Uh, On the testimony of only one witness. Um, The next question was, you said only God himself can raise the dead. How then did the Old Testament prophets raise the dead, such as Elisha 
and the widow's son. Uh, absolutely, no one can raise the dead on their own power. That's what I was referring to. No, I cannot raise the dead. If I raise the dead, it's by the power of God. Um, so, yes, definitely there were miracles that took place. Um, Elisha raised the dead by the power of God, not by the power of Baal, not by his own power, but by the power of God. And uh, the last question was, in light of the message today, what do you think about the death penalty? Oh, man. Um, in society today, especially since we know that the court system is not perfect and uh, many have been accused falsely, that is true. Um, the Old Testament uh, did lean towards a uh, death penalty. There were capital offenses. Um, when you get to the New Testament, uh, they, the Jewish people during the New Testament times, because of Rome's occupation, they were not allowed to really carry out death sentences. Um, very rarely were they allowed to actually execute someone. Um, and uh, so what do I think about the death penalty? Wow, how much time do we have? Um, so I, I, uh, I know of instances where convicted felons um, are in jail and they hear the gospel and it changes them. And had they been executed quickly, that would not have happened. Um, so we, there, there are some people who say we should err on the side of abolishing the death penalty because it gives people time to reflect on the crimes they committed. Um, making them live a long life behind bars is quite the punishment. Um, it also gives them an opportunity to change their heart. And, uh, and we've seen time and time again where con, uh, convicts are able, they do, they hear the gospel in prison, they change. And, uh, and actually one of my pen pals um, is, is uh, a convicted murderer. Um, and so he got in prison, heard the gospel, changed his life. Um, and so um, there certainly is, you know, that um, obviously for my own family, some of y'all know our situation. My father was murdered and uh, he was he was convicted of uh, second degree murder. And so he was not uh, eligible to be executed. Um, you know, our prayer is that God grips his heart, changes him and that uh, he uh accepts Christ and becomes a changed person as well. So um, there is a law of the land. Um, and so we obviously, we don't carry that out. So I don't have to worry about the death penalty or execution because I'm not a person that would carry it out. Um, and so that is how you tap dance around a question. <clears throat> would you stand with me this morning? Um, we'll try to, try not to be too polarizing this morning. We come in contact with people who are hurting, people who are broken on a regular basis. And some of them are shamed publicly. Even within our own church Christian ranks, there are people who fall from grace and they are shamed publicly because of what they've done. Christian bookstores will take their books, take their CDs, take their stuff off the shelf. They clearly weren't inspired of God when they wrote that or when they sang that or when they did that. And, and so we, we sometimes we're very quick to shame other people. Um, and, and then others maybe don't deal with public shame, but they definitely deal with private shame and private guilt. And that is a weight that crushes them. And we have an opportunity to add to that weight by casting our own stones. No one is denying sin, and no one is denying that the penalty of sin is death. Yet we are people who've, who have experienced the amazing grace of God. 
We are people who stood in condemnation, who stood absolutely guilty before a holy God. And that holy God could have announced a declaration of judgment and condemnation and an execution on us. Yet, he did not. He took that guilt. He took that shame. He took that condemnation. And he took that penalty of death upon himself. For our mistakes, for our failures, for our shortcomings, our patience with one another, our mercy, our love, our forgiveness, our grace should extend to hurting and broken people. That's what we should be famous for. We should err on the side of grace, err on the side of mercy, err on the side of forgiveness, instead of what we oftentimes do, erring on the side of judgment, erring on the side of condemnation, erring on the side of being quick to, to throw stones at one another. And we normally don't do things this way, but what I'm going to ask you to do is if you are willing, if you can stand for just a few more moments, would everybody actually please come forward to the altar area? Go ahead. Yeah, now. Now's a good time. Good of a time as any. Because on these altars, you will find a stone. And it's about the size of the stone that these men would have thrown on uh, towards, towards this woman caught in the act of adultery. And I want you to take one of these stones. On this stone is written the word first. And I want you to let this stone be a reminder of what Jesus said. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And I want you, hopefully it will remind you, it will help you remember that each time you see it, each time you hold it, each time you think about it, of what Jesus would do in that situation. Where we can sit as judge, jury, and executioner of someone else's reputation, of someone else's brokenness, of someone else's sin and hurt, we ask ourselves when we hold this stone, what would Jesus do? He would not cast the first stone. What Jesus would do is he would love first. He would love first. That's what I want you to remember. When you get in a situation where it's easy to condemn, where it's easy to pile your stone on top of all the other ones, what would Jesus do? He would love first first. We're going to sing a song this morning, and I hope that it's a reminder for you of how God loves you, what God did for you, as such a beautiful reminder, and then we'll close our service in prayer. I'll ask our worship team to go ahead and lead us in this song.